if it means the difference between some help or no help for a woman leaving an abusive relationship with her children, then I think we know the answer. If a properly trained paralegal can help a parent see their children or help a parent protect their children, then isn't that better for everyone? Hello and welcome to Jumping Off the Ivory Tower with Prop Julie Mack. My name is Dana Cornwall and I'm the project manager at the National Self-Represented Litigants Project. And by the way, we don't recommend jumping off towers other than with parachutes. We just want to make sure that it's a public health warning. Okay? Here in our fourth season, yeah, we I, want to. It's a bit late maybe, but hopefully everybody understands that. And I'm Julie McFarlane, the director of the National Self-Represented Litigants Project. This week, we've got a really great conversation with uh, Nancy Merrill, who is a family lawyer and mediator and became a bencher of the BC Law Society in 2011. And this year, she became the president of the Law Society. That's right. And we thought that uh, following up from our discussion with the Attorney General, David Eby, in British Mm -hmm. Columbia, where lots of things are happening, this would be a great conversation. And Nancy, I know, becomes president with a lot of important ideas that she wants to follow through on. Uh, one of them, of course, relates to paralegal practice. Uh, Nancy was, in fact, the, uh, the, the chair of the working group on alternative legal service providers in British Columbia. She's been working on this for a while now, creating um, a group of paralegals who will be licensed to offer some for types of family law services, just, just like we've seen in mm-hmm. Ontario, mm-hmm. recognizing that that's the area in which we see the most self-reps, paralegals have a lower hourly rate than lawyers and are more affordable for people, which many, many studies now have shown is a primary reason for people going in without any representation or or assistance. So a lot of the conversation that Nancy and I have is about this issue of creating a group of paralegals who will be licensed to work without the supervision of a lawyer, which has always been the way in which paralegals to this point have worked in in British Columbia, without the supervision of a lawyer, although obviously with reference to a lawyer, if they so wish, to offer some kinds of family services with the idea that that will be a way to make those services more accessible, more affordable to people. We also, though, talk about a couple of other things. One of them is the very controversial pro bono proposal that went to the Society's uh, annual general meeting in December. We've talked about that a little in the blog already, and we talked about it, of course, with David Eby as well. This, if you remember, was the idea that lawyers would be required to contribute a certain number of pro bono hours. That actually failed, that motion, and Nancy is very interested, I know, in trying to figure out how to incentivize lawyers regardless of the fact it's not going to be mandatory to nonetheless go ahead and offer pro bono services. And I also found out all kinds of other things that I didn't know to this point about Nancy's other priorities for her time in office as president, which is going to be pretty packed, I think. Uh, Those include initiatives promoting mental health, so an echo of what Mm. we heard in our first episode of the season with Beth. Yep, mental health awareness and diversity initiatives. So lots of material here and an interesting listen. Hello, Nancy. It's Julie calling. How are you today? Hello, Julie. I'm well, thank you. How are you? Good. 
good. And thank you very much again for agreeing to do this interview because I know that you know that there's a great deal of interest in what's going on in British Columbia at the moment. On many fronts, it has to be said, I I actually interviewed your Attorney General uh, a little while ago for the podcast, and we talked a lot about not only paralegals, but also legal aid. But today I really want to talk to you uh, in particular about the work that you've been doing and the debate about extending the role of paralegals. And just to you know, make it clear for our listeners, at present, paralegals in British Columbia offer services under the supervision of a lawyer. And the proposal that has been put before uh, the benches that comes out of the task force, which I hope we'll talk a bit more about in a moment, is to allow a new category, if you like, of licensees who are known as alternative legal service providers, or as we might put it in more layperson's terms, paralegals. I know that you know that we've already been through some of this process in Ontario, and there was a lot of very contentious debate, let's put it that way, around the issue, and now, of course, you're dealing with it in BC. Now, I know having spoken with you before about this, it's an important issue for you and that you were instrumental in setting up the task force on alternative legal service providers. And of course, you were a member of that task force. So first, could, could you start by talking about the thinking behind setting up the task force and why you pressed for this when you did? Julie, this is an initiative that's been in the works for some time. Back in 2014, the Law Society asked the provincial government to amend our Legal Profession Act so as to include a class of legal service providers who were not lawyers. That has finally been accomplished, and in November of last year, the government tabled a legislative amendment that, and this is an interesting distinction, that permitted the benchers but did not require the benchers to license their legals. yes. So, so the that, Legal Profession Act became the Legal Professions Act, which I correct. thought was interesting. Yeah, That legislation has now received royal assent and mm-hmm. will come into force by regulation. So we knew for some time that there are many people who simply don't have the ability or the means to have a lawyer represent them in court. Right. And right. we saw this particularly in family law, but of course we know that people also are representing themselves in tribunal hearings, in wrongful dismissal cases, in slip and fall cases, in criminal Mm -hmm, matters, mm -hmm. uh, and the list goes on. So clearly, there's an access to justice crisis, which just has to be addressed. Um, Our mandate, uh, Law Society of British Columbia, is to protect the public in relation to the administration of justice. And so we saw addressing the access to justice issue as something that falls squarely within our mandate. So we just discussed where should we or could we start to address this issue. Yes. So under the leadership of our past president, Miriam Crescivo, the alternate legal service providing working group was formed. Uh, it's a bit of a mouthful. And it was, we may have to change that name because of course, <laughs> the new legislation doesn't include that nomenclature. It talks about licensed paralegals, but right, um, right. Well, one of the other things we need to address any, in any event, it was decided that we would focus on family law as that appeared right. to us to be the greatest area of unmet legal mm-hmm. needs. And so that was the impetus behind the paralegal initiative. Now, I, I'm curious because uh, I know when we've talked about this before, and as you just mentioned, you know, the nomenclature that you adopted was alternative legal service providers rather than paralegals. I mean, was there a reason that you thought 
that might be a more kind of palatable way of framing it. I think it was simply because we had had a, a different initiative prior that was called designated paralegal. Yes. We were a bit confused. Yes. We were concerned that there was going to be confusion about, well, what are mm-hmm. we talking about now? We've got designated paralegals. Yes. Now we've got licensed paralegals. What's the mm-hmm. difference? So, mm-hmm. so we just decided on that mouthful, alternate legal service provider. <laughs> it's a big change. I mean, obviously, you know, I'm completely in agreement with everything you said, that there is a real and, and a very empirically established difficulty in many people affording the cost of legal services from a lawyer. And it seems that other less expensive services could and should therefore be offered. But of course, there are lots and lots of reasons that people get um, anything from mildly upset to apoplectic about this idea. So first of all, could you talk about the public, Nancy? Because obviously the society owes a duty to the public and whether or not Offering um, licensees in this new class who are not lawyers is actually going to be a good service for the public. I don't know if it's the right way forward, but it's a start. Yes, yeah. Julie, if it if it means the difference between some help or no help for a woman leaving an abusive relationship with her children, then I think we know the answer. If a properly trained paralegal can help a parent see their children or help a parent protect their children, then isn't that better for everyone? And, you know, you're echoing, Nancy, what I hear increasingly from family court judges, which is that some help is better than no help. And that's the reason why many family court judges are now encouraging limited retainers, legal coaching contracts, and even in some cases, the use of paralegals. So secondly, let's talk about the profession and the society. There is a huge change happening across not just Canada, of course, but all common law jurisdictions, and one of the things that's driving that change is uh, a different expectation around services and the difficulty of accessing affordable services. So is this the right change for the legal profession in BC? Well, I think what we're talking about with our particular initiative is addressing the unmet needs. So Mm -hmm. this is Mm -hmm. not something that's encroaching on the work that lawyers are doing. This is the, as you've seen, as I've seen, that the profession has seen, the court has seen, we have an excess of people in the court system on their own, Mm -hmm. without help, without guidance, feeling quite alone and forlorn. And so it's in in terms of the legal profession and how they, they may view it, it's a situation where the legal profession and the law society are concerned about protecting the public. Mm-hmm, we mm-hmm. both want to ensure that people get the help they need and that they get it in a competent and professional manner. So this is not an initiative that is in any way intended to uh, encroach upon the very the good existing work that the market. Bar is yes. doing. It's supplementing it and trying to address that unmet need. And I, you know, I think that there is a very good argument for that. But of course, you also know that this is something that is. Some, sometimes experienced as a threat from established family lawyers who are concerned, and one of the, the arguments that we have heard a lot in Ontario, that family law work is just too complex, quote unquote, to be done by anybody other than a lawyer. And in fact, one of the arguments that, that kind of 
tracks alongside that is, and that means even if a paralegal costs less every hour, they'll have to do so much more work to do it at the standard of a lawyer that people will end up having to pay the same bill at the end and nobody will get ahead. So what, what would you say to that? I'm sure you've heard this argument. Oh, yes. Our vision for these licensed paralegals is that they are going to be extremely well-trained. And we are looking at post-secondary training of some depth and rigor. It may be an 18-month diploma course, or it may be a Bachelor of Justice degree. Yes. The education and the training is going to depend very largely on what type of work these paralegals are going to be engaged in. And we haven't settled on that yet. Um, I, I can tell you that the Law Foundation of British Columbia has a very effective advocate training program, and they mm. already have family and other advocates providing the type of legal services we're talking about. Just in including appearing in court? They don't appear and speak. They right. almost are like an amicus curiae right. or a, a support person. McKenzie friend, right. Exactly. Um, perhaps an interesting comparison is, is we have uh, already allowed non-lawyer family mediators. Yes. They have very stringent education and training requirements. We face the same type of concern when credentialing these non-lawyer mediators. Mm -hmm. That mm -hmm. family law is too complicated for non-lawyers mm -hmm. to deal with. Mm -hmm. And yet the non-lawyer mediators have been very successful in providing a lower cost option to the public. They can't provide the scope of services that a lawyer mm -hmm. mediator can, mm -hmm. but it's mm -hmm. still... Uh, it's more than just a Band-Aid solution is what I'm saying. Right. So, Nancy, is it too early? And, you know, it may be. This may be an unfair question to ask because I know that the society has just begun its um, sort of post-amendment to the Legal Professions Act consultation now on what this category might actually look like. But can you say anything about what your vision of the scope of practice might be here? Julie, we are still in the consultation phase. Right, um, right, it, right. The, that's something that we want feedback from mm -hmm. justice system stakeholders on, including the legal profession. Um, we are struggling with issues such as should they be able to appear in court? Should they be yes. officers of the court? Should they be yes. able to give and receive undertakings? Should they be able to have trust accounts? So there's so much that has yet to be determined. And so uh, subject to the bencher's approval, I'm proposing that we do further consultation with stakeholders mm -hmm, mm -hmm, and then mm -hmm. we might even look at expanding the mandate of the working group to look at other areas in addition to family law. Oh, that's interesting. Would, yeah, yeah. And, and I also want to uh, repopulate the working group so it's more representative of the stakeholders and not comprised exclusively of ventures and lawyers. Yes. We want and to get this right. Yeah. This isn't and just simply too important to push through without appropriate it, consultation. It, it really is. And, and you know, in terms of that consultation, do you have plans to bring in focus groups of family litigants or members of the public? Great. Absolutely. I think we're going Great. to do some additional focus groups. It's a more extensive consultation. And Good. If, Good. As, as I said, if the benchers approve this, I would envision having paralegal, perhaps uh, self-represented litigants, mm, um, mm. some of the support workers that are already working uh, as yes. in, in the justice system, helping uh, victims of domestic violence, for example. Yes. yes. Um, Native court workers, we need to mm. have an Aboriginal representation on the, the working group. So it, it could end up being perhaps a rather large working group. But again, I think this initiative is just such an important one that we just right. need to take the time and we need to get it right. And, and it needs to be representative. And, and as I obviously you, you appreciate, I think the 
the deeper the consultation, the more useful information you're going to get. So that's certainly uh, that's certainly really encouraging to to hear that that you're planning to do this. Now, you know, I do want to before we close today. You know, I, I've I said to you in preparation, I really wanted to focus on paralegals because that's what everybody is talking about at the moment. But is there anything else in, you know, as you have now just become the president, congratulations to the Law Society, anything else that is important to you to address during your term that you just want to talk about for a few moments? I have a number of things I would like to accomplish, but it's ultimately the benchers who determine what's, what gets done and how it gets done and when. And obviously yes. this is a democracy and not a monarchy. So, um, <laughs> That's unfortunate. Did you know that when you took the job? <laughs> but I think for me the most important of the things I'd like to accomplish is that the Law Society of British Columbia is a courageous and a responsive and an innovative regulator. That, that For me those things are key. Yeah. But, of course, in addition to the licensed paralegal initiative, legal aid continues to be an important strategic mm-hmm. priority for us. We we need to keep lobbying the government to properly fund legal aid. I firmly believe there is a cost to society of not properly funding legal mm-hmm. aid. Mm-hmm. Uh, truth and reconciliation remains, for me and for the benchers, an important priority. Uh, we've developed an action plan and we're concentrating efforts Uh, to implement in a culturally appropriate way the action plan. Promoting equity and diversity is very important to me and to the benchers as well. And we have a a mental health initiative. Uh, The mental health of the profession is such an important priority for me and for us that we we need to address that. We need to help people, not punish them. Fortunately, we have a, a group of very gifted and dedicated ventures that work well together, and, and so I'm confident we can move all of these priorities forward. Okay, well, that's uh, I, we might very well want to check back in with you. Um, we actually are planning a couple of podcasts on mental health issues amongst lawyers this season, so uh, it's good to know that. Can I can I just go back momentarily to the legal aid piece because, of course. Uh, the recommendations that Jamie McLaren made have now gone to the Attorney General, and you know we're all waiting to see what comes out of that uh, on the future of legal aid services in British Columbia. And I know that the AG is very interested in in looking at different ways to offer those services. But of course, one of the things that the public will have heard about um, last December was this very contentious debate amongst the members of the society, not just the benches, of course, but the members over pro bono hours. And I was wondering whether or not you wanted to put a toe in that water and say what you thought should be the appropriate response um, to the question of whether or not there should be mandatory pro bono hours on behalf of people who would be legally aided. Well, we are continuing to look at that. We have just recently looked at changing our annual practice declaration to ask lawyers how much pro bono work they're doing, what Mm -hmm. kind of work they're doing, why they're doing it, why not they're doing it, so we can get a better sense of the landscape out there. Um, I've also asked our Access to Legal Services Advisory Committee to explore ways that we might incentivize pro bono work by lawyers. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, Because this is... In what kinds of ways do you think that could be done? Well, I'm not sure if they're giving credit uh, for... uh, our continuing professional development hours, right, whether it's right. maybe it's uh, an award that the Law Society gives mm. out. We give out an award for excellence in family law, for equity right. and diversity, and for legal aid. So maybe pro bono should be the next category. We're looking at things like, in terms of incentivizing it, how do we uh, 
for lack of a better term, dangle that carrot. Mm-hmm. We talk about, you know, here's a list of why it's important to do pro bono work. Mm-hmm. It's considered on your judicial application, for example, yes. which is yes. a bit of a mercenary reason, but um, it, it's a reason nonetheless. So I think if we can just get some brainstorming done, mm-hmm. talk to the profession, mm-hmm talk to and the staff within the law society because if we're looking at giving any kind of uh, reduction in insurance or our membership fees right. for people who are doing any kind of pro bono work or public service work then it, there's there's administrative costs to that and yes. do those end up outweighing what we're trying to accomplish yeah so yep. those, are, those are some of the things we're looking at it's definitely hmm. on our radar and and i have tasked a couple of committees to look at that issue that that's actually a really good segue into, into the last thing that i wanted to ask you nancy which is you know, so many of the issues that you're dealing with are about practical changes that also encourage cultural change. I mean, you know, to use the pro bono hours as an example, you know, you're talking about this from a very practical point of view. How do you incentivize pro bono? But of course, what we really want are lawyers who genuinely want to do pro bono work and give it just as much attention as they do their other files for the, you know, small amount of time that they might spend on it. And a profession in which that is a cultural norm. It's not something that is, you know, outside of people's usual expectations. And certainly for that, for many lawyers, that is already true. But, you know, sort of really moving the culture so that the the lawyers see themselves and the public see lawyers as being genuinely willing to do that kind of work is, is important. And, you know, we can apply the same thing to paralegals. You know, it would be really nice not to drag family lawyers into accepting paralegals kicking and screaming, but to have them, you know, accepting that this is the evolution of the diversification and the delegation of work in order to to serve a very wide market. So when you became the the society's president, I'm sure that you realized that what you were doing was taking on a far more sort of small P political role. And that, you know, what you were doing was going to be not just working on initiatives, but also trying to drive that sense of culture change. And I wonder whether you could, in closing, just say a little bit about what you see some of those important cultural changes being in the profession in the next couple of years and how your work might contribute to that. Well, I've always been a big proponent of civility. I don't know that that's something that I can accomplish in only a year, but I would like to see if there's ways that we can inject more civility into the profession, because I think that has that spillover effect onto the clients and in resolution of litigation and in particular family law. We don't yeah. need lawyers to inflame the situation. We need mm-hmm. lawyers to put those those fires out and to try and get people to... Um, resolve their issues outside of the court process. And Uh, if I could just add to that, Nancy, the other thing that we hear about increasingly is whether lawyers should have that same duty of civility towards litigants who are representing themselves on the other side. I think need to rethink how we train lawyers. Mm. Uh, I, I think it's important that for lawyers, we hold such a special privileged place in society that we really do need to lead by example and I Mm. think it's important that we treat everyone with dignity and respect whether that's an unrepresented litigant whether that's our clients whether that's our colleagues Uh, I think that's just so important things go much more smoothly and everyone's best interests 
I remember hearing someone say recently that um, some of my best days as a lawyer were because of who was on the other side of the file, and some of my worst days as a lawyer was Mm -hmm. because who was on the other side of the file. And I think that ties into the mental health initiative that we were discussing earlier. Yes. It's, it's, this is such a stressful job that we really should be respectful, treat each other with dignity, and this applies to everyone, but particularly our colleagues, because this is such a difficult job to do. We, we should be helping each other. And hopefully that will eventually include the licensed paralegals in British Columbia. Exactly. Nancy, thank you so much for your time this morning. This has been a great conversation, and I really appreciate it, and I know we're going to stay in touch. Thank you. Thanks, Thanks, Julie. My pleasure. So there's a lot to talk about here, but one of the first things was she mentioned that, you know, the idea of licensing paralegals to do some family law work is not to encroach on lawyers and on their practices, but to supplement what lawyers are doing, which is something that, you know, the profession has to keep in mind. Yes. And and I loved her framing of that. And and I thought the parallel she drew with the licensing of non lawyer family mediators uh, was yeah. also really a, a, a good parallel. That was very interesting. It was, it was a huge issue um, at that time, whether or not mediators who mediated family disputes had to be lawyers. Mm-hmm. And that we had the same debate in other parts of the country. And what's happened over time is that the concerns that people had about non-lawyer family mediators have evaporated. <laughs> and more and more people use non-lawyer family mediators because they have the kinds of skills that they need to help them reach a conclusion and of course if there are lawyers representing people they can do the legal bits so it's another example of how we can expand services without necessarily encroaching on the core work that lawyers do well and keeping in mind that the debates we have at one time you know when you look back on them you know, it's kind of to be expected now, but right. you, they, you had this huge debate at the time, so I think it's good to kind of point that out yeah. and say, look, at this can work. Yeah. And then secondly, I really liked what she said about how she thinks that they need to be a courageous, responsive, mm-hmm. and innovative regulator. And I think my favorite word in there, we hear, you know, words like responsive and innovative from groups like this, and of course, that's those are good things to be and good things to strive to, but what really struck me was the word cr- courageous. Yes. I love that. Yes. To have a courageous Courageous regulator implies, you know, kind of a trailblazing, uh, thought-provoking. And doing things that haven't been done before. Yes. And that was why I asked her about the consultation piece, which was very interesting to see that they are talking about expanding that beyond the usual very small circle, which is, of course, something that we feel very passionately about at the project. Yeah. And then finally, one of the other things that I want to pull out from your conversation is you talked a little bit about the need to rethink how we train lawyers. Completely. From the beginning. (laughs) Tear it up and start again. I'm sorry. Nancy may not have said that. I'm saying that. (laughs) The opinions expressed here are the opinions of Julie McFarland. And Dana Cornwall at this point, I have to be honest. This is something that obviously does need to be addressed and rethought, that lawyers need to be thinking about the way they treat not only their colleagues in the profession, but the way they treat, of course, their clients, but also perhaps SRLs that they are coming of the public. across and members of the public in general. Yeah. 
Yeah, it's, and I think that that really is a reorientation for lawyers. They're so used to dealing with one another mm -hmm. and finding, you know, some kind of standard of, of polite communication and, and, and honest communication. But we don't train people to work with others like that. And we really do need to think very hard now, I think, about how new law school graduates are going to be equipped to talk to members of the public, not just their own clients, mm. but people who are representing themselves as well. In Other News. Welcome back to another segment of In Other News, where we share some updates from the world of access to justice. First up, we're thrilled that NSRLP will have intervener status in another upcoming appeal, this time at the Alberta Court of Appeal. The case deals with fundamental questions of access to justice that self-represented litigants face, particularly in the context of designating SRLs as vexatious or of issuing contempt orders, both of which are outcomes that we see far too often. We've linked to the brief summary of the Leave to Appeal decision that we posted on Twitter. This marks the third time NSRLP will have had intervener status in the past two years, the first instance being the highly influential Supreme Court of Canada decision in Pintea v. Johns from April of 2017, and the second being the recent Ontario Court of Appeal decision in Kawartha Halliburton Children's Aid Society v. MW, Curve Lake First Nation, and Office of the Children's Lawyer. It's important to continue with these gradual but mounting victories and continue to strive for a fairer justice system. For our second story, earlier this month, the Ontario Court of Appeal published an order that provided CBC the right to place cameras in particular courtrooms to record, live stream, and broadcast specific proceedings. The order also states at paragraph 3 that the cameras may not be removed or repositioned without leave of the court, so it seems like these cameras are here to stay. We're hopeful that this could result in more openness and transparency in court proceedings. We've linked to the order on our website. Third, the Ontario government announced that there will be a fundamental change to the justice system by vastly expanding the pool of potential jurors to better reflect economic and racial diversity. Up until now, Ontario has determined who could serve on a jury by using impact data, which is limited to those individuals who own homes in municipalities. This system typically excluded reserves and those who rented their homes. While there were supplemental processes that allowed some of these individuals to be on source roles, these were not exhaustive and resulted in racially imbalanced juries, as found by a 2018 investigation by the Toronto Star and the Ryerson School of Journalism. This recent announcement by the Ontario government will result in the use of data from the Ontario Health Insurance Plan instead, and will make the jury system more representative of society. For more information on why this is important news, we've linked to an article on slaw.ca. For our fourth news story, Julie McFarlane and Bernie Mayer presented a joint keynote address for the annual conference of the Ontario Association of Family Mediators and the Ontario Collaborative Law Federation. The title of the keynote was Self-Represented Families and Access to Justice. Julie and Bernie discussed the role of mediators in administering access to justice and examined the goal of a new and better family justice system and what that might look like. For more information on the conference, we've linked to the conference website 
And we encourage you to also read some of the tweets from the conference by searching for the hashtag Peacemakers19. We'll be discussing the conference in more detail in a future episode as well, so stay tuned for that. That's it for this episode of Jumping Off the Ivory Tower. Join us next week for a conversation with Joyce Carver, a local trans activist and founder of Windsor-Essex Trans Support. 